change, and I want to go to Matthew chapter 15. It's an interesting uh, series, Jesus, or, 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 or chapter. Uh, it starts with Jesus being confronted uh, by teachers from Jerusalem, etc., and, and Pharisees, and, and they were really irritated with Jesus because um, the disciples were being very naughty. They weren't following COVID protocols and washing their hands before they ate. Now, there was, um, you know, there could be other problems with not washing your hands, uh, but, but the issue was that, that, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had created religious problems out of it. And so, you know, if you've got a, a, a stomach of iron like Greg Buckle over there, um, and uh, so there's a little story you can ask him about that. But if, if you've got, if you've got the, the constitution that can eat almost anything, well then, you know, eat almost anything. But don't put religious connotations. And these guys were saying, well, you, you're actually breaking, uh, you know, God's will. And they, their wording is quite uh, careful. They say the tradition of the elders. And, and it's just like it unhinges Jesus a bit. And he replies and he says, and why do you break the word of God? You know, forget, forget the tradition of the elders, the command of God, for the sake of some of those very traditions that you hold. And he, he then exposes a pension fund scam that they've been running at the temple. Because what they'd been doing is they'd been telling people, now in those days they didn't have, you know, the green temple on the hill called Old Mutual. And so um, people, their pension was through their children. Literally that's how you got through your old age, is you were cared for by the community that you once cared for. And so you moved through those final years of life, um, and, and, and that's how people looked after you. Now, people had to make provision to take care of their folks when they could no longer work. And so people did try and make provision. So you made provision for your parents' pension. That's how the rules worked. Now, you know, obviously, as in any pension scheme, people are going, wow, there's a lot of money locked up inside of the provision that people have made for when people get old. And so some sharp priest or Pharisee thought, well, what if we had to tell people that instead of looking after their vulnerable elderly parents, they gave that money to God? I mean, that's much more spiritual, isn't it? So if you give the money you've set aside to look after your parents to God, then you're really going to be blessed. Now, when they gave that money to God, of course, they were able to take that money and send it in an envelope straight to heaven. That's what the priests did. They didn't touch it. They didn't benefit from it. There was nothing, you know. Reminds me of a story I heard of a Baptist minister chatting to a Methodist who, who also knew the rabbi. And the three of them were talking about what they did with the offering. And the Baptist said, you know, there's, a, there's, there's always two sides to the story. So... What we do is we get the money for the offering. I draw a line down the middle of the church and I throw the money up into you know, the air and that which lands on the right goes to the Lord. That which lands on the left stays with me. The Methodist guy said, well, <clears throat> we tend to think more inclusively, so I draw a circle. And I throw the money up 
and that which lands outside the circle belongs to the Lord and his work, and that which lands inside the circle stays with me. And the rabbi smiles and he says, I go into the synagogue, I take all that money, and I throw it into the air. And that which God catches, he keeps, and that which comes down. <laughs> Something similar was going on over here with these guys at the temple. They had worked out that if they could get people, and Jesus just unhinges at them. Like they fussed about externals keeping you clean. And and he says, listen, you've, the way you're using your money and exploiting people's money is making you so unclean in one sense. And then he, he says, you're just hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is meaningless or vain. And their rules are just the rules of men. And then verse 10, I'll read it. Jesus called a crowd to him, and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. It's what comes out of their mouth. That is what defiles them. He's talking about the words, the beliefs, the statements, the proclamations, the declarations we make, the things we say. The disciples came to Jesus and thought they need, he needed some training in, you know, social empathy and skills. And they said to him, do you know the Pharisees were offended when you said this? Like, duh. <laughs> he replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. they blind guides. The blind leave the blind both fall into a pit. Sure, he's not pulling any punches. So Peter said, explain the parable to us. And when I was a kid, most of the churches used to have something painted on the front or nailed there or whatever. And normally it was like, shut up and listen. Sorry, I'm in Psalm 46, be still and know that I'm God, and you weren't allowed to make a noise or whatever. And then I came across Matthew 15 and verse 16, and I wondered why nobody put it in the front of the church. Jesus replied, are you still so dull? <laughs> like, I don't know if he was just like in a hectic mood that day or what. It's like, come on, people. I mean, you know, we know we're supposed to speak for strength and comfort and encourage. Are you still so doff? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what ruin a person or defile a person. Back to point number one. Eating with unwashed hands, least of your worries. Okay. There's quite a few implications here. 
Um, and I'm not sure I'm going to do justice to all of them. But the first thing that we can say is that the ceremonial law has been surpassed and fulfilled by Jesus. So there's the ceremonial law. And some of the, that law was Dinkum law, not just the tradition of the elders. The elders had, in a sense, built a ring around the law so that, you know, if that was the dividing line, then they said, no, well, let's make it over here so you've got no chance of breaking the law. Um, but even the law itself has been surpassed by Jesus. The Pharisees worry about tradition. Jesus goes a step further and implies that the external practices that onto which people put religious significance, well, these do not make you more or less acceptable to God. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 says, Christ, the Messiah, is the end of the law, the goal, the finish line, the completion, the perfection. Christ himself has completed and perfected the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. You see, we couldn't keep the law, but God said someone who could. And if you put your faith in the one who keeps the law, you get credited with that righteousness that defined him. He died the death you should have died. And then he gives to you and to me the merits of a life that we could not live. Christ is the end or the goal or the finish or the completion of the law. Now, Jesus didn't come to belittle the law or to, do, to you know, break it down or abolish it, but to fulfill it and carry it to its completion, to help it reach its goal, which would ultimately be to introduce the Messiah whose kingdom is by faith. A kingdom whose, uh, in which God's will gets done on earth as it is in heaven. And so this ceremonial law and I know I'm making a bit of a, a broad-based distinction, I'm aware of that, theologians, uh, is, um, but nevertheless, was valid in the Old Testament with the priests and the offerings and the sacrifices, has been fulfilled and completed by Jesus. We just don't need to do those things anymore. You see, Jesus could come and change the heart, and that's what I want to talk about, the power to really change. See, Jesus changed the rules, <laughs> but can he change my heart? Can the things that come out of my life not defile me, but make me clean? The second thing is that Jesus nullifies their human traditions. Verse 9, he says, you're living by rules that people have made up. You just got man-made rules. And the traditions that Jesus opposed and exposed were many during his time on earth. Traditions that excluded sinners. I mean, Jesus let a known sinful woman come into the place where he was eating and wash his feet with her tears. Like there were so many taboos in that one encounter. Jesus refused to exclude her. Jesus uprooted traditions that broke lives. I mean, for example, until someone actually called it out, how many elderly people were destitute because of this pension fund scheme? And rich people were then just passing on to the temple 
the money that was meant to care for the vulnerable. Jesus dismissed traditions that prevented ministry. I mean, people didn't want him to heal on the Sabbath, or they didn't want him to do this or that, and again and again. I mean, in one instance he says, is it possible, is it permissible to do good on the Sabbath? Must I kill or must I ta save a life? And the people are just sitting there and they're angry, Mark. And it says, Jesus got angry back. <laughs> they were just dead silent. And at the end of it, when he heals the man with the shriveled hand, he says, stretch out your hand, the man is healed on the Sabbath. It says that the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, which was the political elite that actually controlled the Jewish society on behalf of the Roman oppressors. So now they become in cohorts to come against Jesus. Why? Because he refused to follow traditions that disqualified people from ministry according to who they were or what day it was. Jesus insisted that the kingdom comes first. Jesus overthrew traditions that exalted a false righteousness. I mean, read the Sermon on the Mount. People pray on street corners in order to be seen by men. Jesus says, just stop it. And Jesus would wake up early in the morning and go climb a mountain by himself and he'd spend time with his father there. I suppose the challenge to us is how many traditions do we have that exclude people and create a false sense of righteousness and all the rest of it. You know, when we do that, we're in danger of being called out by our younger generations. We just need to stay as real as Jesus. And of course, you know, I, I heard of three guys in an Irish pub. I mean, a man who went into an Irish pub and he order three beers. And every night he'd walk in just after work, knocked off, and he'd ordered three beers. And he'd have to take his time, but he'd finish his three beers, and then he would go home. And everyone knew it, and, but they didn't know the story behind it. So eventually someone said, why do you order three? And you order three all at the same time, and you put them out there. He says, no, no, I've got two brothers. And one lives in the States, and one lives in Australia, and here I am in Dublin, and so we decided that at the end of the workday, we'll go order three beers. So they do it, and they do it, and, and so there's three of us, and we share a beer together. So everyone is happy with that, and then suddenly, a few years later, he walks in one day, and he says, two beer, please, and the whole place goes silent, like the whole place. And eventually, a couple of them chat, and the barman comes over, and he says, we're so sorry. Like, what happened? One of your brothers died. The guy says, no, 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 nothing like that. My wife joined the Baptist church, and they're not allowed to drink. So I can't order beer, but it hasn't affected my brothers. <laughs> Our traditions. It isn't even time to look at this today, but Jesus says it's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. Be very, very aware of your words. There's isn't even time to look at that today. The things we say, the things we just 
put out there, be so aware that it's our words, not just our actions or whatever, that have a huge power. James 3 cautions that a horse, this huge, beautiful animal, is controlled by a tiny bit between its teeth or ship with a large rudder. What great forest is consumed by a fire started by a tiny spark? The tongue reveals what's in the heart, and the tongue can deeply mess up our lives. So this is kind of the background to where Jesus then comes and says, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. I want you to remember those words, from the heart. Because we're going to pick it up towards the end of the sermon. Or out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, etc., etc. This is what defiles us. So here's the thing, main point. We are responsible for our actions. We are responsible for our sin. Jesus says, out of your heart is where these things come from. See, the root of our uncleanness is not the food we take in. It's the output of our lives. It's not out there, it's in here. Jesus recognizes that the responsibility for the dark stuff is internal. Henry Brandt, who was a Christian psychologist and counselor, says, Jesus has come to the heart of the problem, the problem of the heart. Sin lies within us. It has breached our defenses we don't like to hear this, especially verse 19. Uh, Jesus says, it's you. <laughs> it's out of your heart. This is where it comes from. Uh, we much prefer to blame outside causes. You know, and this is nothing new. Back in Genesis 3, you know, there's the original sin. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the snake. And the snake, as we know, doesn't have a leg to stand on. And so... <laughs> Today we're a bit more sophisticated. We, um, we, we've become quite scientific in our excuses to try and get around how Je where Jesus sees the heart of the problem is, which is the problem of the heart. So we might, for example, the science of excusing ourselves is sometimes called determinism. Biology says it's genetic. You know, you can blame all your behavior and attitudes and grumpiness on granny and grandpa and whoever else came before. And so bad tempers run in the family or even in the tribe or the nationality and we stereotype people and everything. And we use those stereotypes to blame everybody else, but we use those same stereotypes to excuse ourselves. Well, psychology says it's in your upbringing, in your background. You know, you can blame it on your parents. You got angry when you missed the potty or something like that. You know, early formative stages and a crisis happens. Sociology says it's in your environment. Blame your mistakes on your boss, your wife, your husband, your kids, your enemies, on the whites, on the blacks, on the economy, on anything else you can find. Just don't accept responsibility. 
And Jesus, remember, he's talking to oppressed people and he's not going to let them get away. I mean, he's now talking to his disciples. He's not rebuking the Pharisees. He's talking to his own followers about what the takeaway lesson is. These were the fishermen and the jolly terrorists, Judas Ischari, who carried the knife wanting to stab a Roman, you know. These were the guys who were fighting all this stuff. He's talking to the guys at the bottom of the food chain, and he says, it's in your heart. And he won't let them get away with blaming someone else, no matter how oppressive or hard their circumstances. Why does he do that? Why won't he let me blame someone else for my behavior? Because he knows that the moment I blame outside factors, I surrender the power to change. The moment I blame outside factors, I surrender the power to change. Why? Because until those factors change or until those people change, I'm justified in staying the way I am. Sure, but you know that makes me powerless because I'm waiting for them to change before I can move forward. So Jesus does not want to render you powerless. He wants to fill your life with the grace and the power of heaven. And so you can't use that kind of thinking. He says it's out of your heart that these things come. So I can't say until they change or until this changes, I'm going to act the way I do. You know, and we see an example of this in the Old Testament. There's a huge difference between the first king of Israel, King Saul, and the second king, King David. And if you compare them, uh, they both had degrees of success and failure. Both messed up. But if you look at when Saul messed up really badly, for example, in 1 Samuel 17, uh, 15, he blames the Amalekites, he blames God's instructions, he blames the soldiers for not killing anyone, he blames the people for wanting stuff. And God removes the kingdom from him precisely because he will not accept responsibility. The kingdom belongs to those who accept responsibility. And David fails desperately. I mean, he commits murder after adultery and Nathan confronts him and there's no hint of blame. 2 Samuel 12 verse 13. Now he's been hiding from the truth for at least nine months. But then he says, I have sinned against one is just blaming everyone else. The other is, I have sinned. And then comes, if you read Psalm 51, this profound confession, confession of sin. He owns his action. There's no hint of blaming anyone else. And inside that confession is released a power to change. Cleanse me, wash me, create in me a pure heart. And it says he goes under the hand of God the surgeon and he does a heart transplant. See, as long as I'm blaming everyone else, I lose the power to change. 
But what about the outside influences? What about the stuff we had no power over? What about the economic situation into which we were born? Or the community in which we were born, in which violence is so endemic? What about, what about the desperate poverty in which my parents teach me to steal? What about my background, our broken homes, the emotional manipulation and exploitation from people who should know better? What about being hurt by those who are absolutely closest to us? What about the wider society and the chaos that runaway inflation or unemployment is causing? What about people who are third generation without a job? Does that mean nothing to Jesus? I'm glad you asked. We need to jump another chapter or two. We need to go to Matthew chapter 18. I haven't got time to read the whole chapter, but it's, it's a profound chapter. And it begins with Jesus. Well, let me say this first. The wounds and fears and abuses that we have faced can really cause chaos. Precisely because they get into our hearts. Remember, Jesus is out of your heart. And so these things breach us. They get in. And they begin to define us. Even though we didn't do them. They were done to us. Or they were just simply the reality that was around us. However, it's not just as simple as to say, as some popular American and other sort of like public speakers say, well, that's external stimuli. And you must simply find the willpower not to let that mess with your heart and mind. And so there's your circumstance. And the way over that is your willpower. You must just choose. You know, those experiences have, long before your rational mind gets to the point of choosing, access to your heart, your thoughts, your story, your default settings, the word is out of your mouth before you even know what shaped it. That's the power of these things. Come on, Jesus, we need a bit of help. <laughs> you see the problem? Like, like, it's not we're trying to blame this thing. It's just this is what has conditioned me, shaped me. You say out of the heart, well, this stuff's got into my heart. You know, David, as I showed us, shows us we must choose to repent when we've messed up. But Jesus' wisdom and understanding adds something else to the power to change. In Matthew 6, verse 12, in the Lord's Prayer, there's this famous line, Forgive us our sins, repentance, as we forgive those who've sinned against us the mirror responsibility of forgiveness. See, so often we try and repent of things that we first need to forgive. Stuff has happened to us. True stories, harm, neglect, all worse, are the movies that are playing in the scenes of our mind and they are the seeds that have been planted in our hearts. And Jesus understands that your willpower is no match for that conditioning. <laughs> out of your heart. It's, it's like literally coming out of your heart. 
So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18, starts talking about children and those who make them stumble. And he talks about how important a child is in the kingdom of heaven. And then he warns against those who take children through experiences that make those children likely to stumble and fall. And he says, you'd rather jump into a deep sea with a millstone around your neck than be responsible for messing with the inputs of a child's heart. And then he says in um, Matthew 18 again, and, and now we're getting a little bit further down in the chapter. He talks about the parable of the lost or the wandering sheep. Now, if you look at verse 10, which introduces it in verse 11, see to it you do not despise these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven will always see the face of my Father in heaven. Then he tells the story of the wandering sheep. And the wandering sheep, Jesus is very clear at, in, in this instance. I know in Luke 15, it's got another context. There were Pharisees and sinners sitting in front of him. He tells the story there. But this context, he tells the story of the wandering sheep and the 99 and the one. And then in verse 14, he says this, in the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. He's talking about the little ones who become wandering sheep. Stuff has been done to them that make them stumble and they themselves become wandering sheep and God sets out for them and he, it is so important to them, to him that they get the opportunity to come home. And then he says this, and so if someone sins against you, go and show them their fault just between the two of you. And he begins to talk about a journey towards trying to get towards reconciliation through forgiveness. And, and there's some potent passages about binding and loosing, in other words, literally about changing the whole authority environment that you're in. I'll let you go study that for yourself. And then he comes to the end and he tells the famous parable in answer to Peter's question, how many times should we forgive? Should I forgive seven times? And he says, 70 times seven. Bottom line, if you're keeping score, you're not forgiving. And, uh, and he tells the story of the, the, the man who was forgiven much who refused to forgive someone who owed him only a little. And the man suffers torment and then Jesus says this, and he has the inclusio all the way down at verse 35. This is how, so this man ends up tormented, and he says, this is how your heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive from your heart. You see, we need to repent from the heart when we've done wrong. But you are just as responsible when wrong has been done to you, even if it is from yay high and by all those different... It's not that science is uninformed or inaccurate or, or that there isn't a certain degree in which the conditioning we receive is tremendously powerful in our lives. Jesus knows that. But if it's causing you to stumble, 
Jesus takes a whole chapter, Matthew chapter 18, to talk about what it's like to be sinned against as a little person and what's going to set you free one day. It's forgiving someone from your heart. There's no power in repenting of something that you need to forgive. No power. Equally, there's no power in telling someone you forgive them when you need to repent. I mean, we get that. You know, if I sinned against Joan and then I went to Joan and I said, Joan, I forgive you. It's okay. Like, I'm just layering more sin and abuse into that. It's powerless. It's, it's sick and evil for me to do that. You can't switch the two around. And equally, in God's eyes, it's diseased for you to try and repent of something you first need to forgive. It's unclean. It's got no power. Accepting the blame for something someone else did to you will never set you free. Jesus said it's truth that sets you free. Making yourself the scapegoat. How are we doing? Some of you have heard this story, but I think it's important. And it just illustrates that you can't repent of something you first need to forgive. You may well find yourself able to meaningfully repent. Because guess what happens? You act out the stuff that gets done to you. So there comes a point where you do need to repent. But you need to find out how this thing got into your heart because it's now the problem is it's coming out. It got in. How did it get in? Sometimes we sin and we let it in. But Jesus understands when sometimes someone sins against you when you were completely innocent, even little and young, and they've caused you to stumble and they've caused you to carry a burden. And he says, the way you set yourself free, the way you find the power to change is forgiving them. Guess what? Even if they don't repent, they don't need to change anymore. <laughs> you have found the power to change in spite of what they do. It doesn't matter. They don't have to change anymore. They can stay whatever they are. I mean, of course, you don't want them to. But you're no longer under the control of their character or their choices. Your life now flows out of your heart. When I was... 9, 10, 11, I spent two, three, uh, two years in hospital, literally fastened in traction to a bed. And uh, while I was there, an older patient befriended me, groomed me, and sexually abused me. And I told no one, because I'd been properly groomed. And at 10 years old, I did not, like, I just took it in. 
I took in the guilt. I took it in, and as the years went on, I acted out what was done to me. It resulted in a serious addiction that took 15 years to work through. But not only did I act it out, I also, something came into me, which was a fear of and therefore an anger towards anything that was innocent or soft or gentle when I was 10. And I had a beautiful high treble soprano boy voice. And I thought that's what made attractive. I don't want anything feminine about my life. I want any man who sees me to see a man. And I despised anything vulnerable or soft. I was afraid of it and therefore became angry towards it. It was a threat. And so my relationships with girls and with women got destroyed by anger. I mean, girls were scared of me. Not because I tried to... I just projected this aggression. And I became a Christian and started following Jesus and I did not know this thing was still inside. And of course, I repented again and again and again of what had happened in that hospital ward. But it held no power. Because I was trying to repent of something I needed to forgive. And it was only when, and it wasn't like, yeah, there's a lot of healing going on, but the real breakthrough came about six years ago. When thinking about that abuse, I found myself on a run, and I said, Jesus, I know you never left me. Where were you? And instantly I had total recall of the hospital ward, the room, the colors, the metal, the aluminium, the beds, the mattress, I'm literally everything, this person, and I had blocked their name out, I could instantly tell their name, I knew what they looked like. Total recall. Except Jesus was standing next to the bed, holding my hand, and not so much in reference to the... uh, to the Lord's table, but in reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, which says, your, your, your body is for the Lord. He was holding my hand and he was saying, this is my body. This is my body. This is my body. And as I realized what was in his heart, I cried out my forgiveness to this man. And he flew instantly. Why? Because 
when you forgive, if it needs forgiveness, there's power to change. If you repent when it needs repentance, there's power to change. And all of it is in Jesus. Who creates this space where people can come into God and literally be changed from the inside out. Dave, Carol, you come join me. I want to remind you that this gospel carries the power to change. As I've shown you today, Jesus knows that that power needs discernment. You've got to work out. Like sometimes, literally, you do. You, you know, Jesus came preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sometimes you've messed up. And once I had forgiven, then repenting was like obvious. It was like, of course, all that stuff. But somehow now, it was like effective. I got a new heart. You see, out of the heart, out of the heart, by the Spirit, comes things against which there is no law. Galatians 5, like love. Out of the heart, by the Spirit, the fruit He produces is joy. Out of the heart, by the Spirit, comes peace and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness. In other words, just as much darkness could come out of your heart if you let Jesus in, He will enable the grace of light to come. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are here, literally. And you're inviting us into a vulnerability and an honesty. They can make us new. And Lord, the change that has eluded us becomes possible. Not because of positive thinking, but because you actually deal with the root issues in our lives. And you take the moments of darkness and you fill them with light. You take that which causes us to mourn and you comfort us. And instead of a spirit of heaviness, we begin to wear a garment of praise. Why? Because the spirit of the sovereign Lord was on you, Jesus. And that same spirit, that same salvation, that same transformation, is available now.